We are in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, looking at the last portion of the admonition that the writer to the Hebrews gives to this misguided and drifting congregation. It is part of a larger uh, section, verses 19 to 25, that we've already considered. And I'm very excited to get into this last portion with you. So uh, as you turn there and find your way to verses 24 and 25 and have them at the ready, I do want to say that we all know, I think, very well just how detrimental worldly ideologies can be when the church accepts them as legitimate biblical doctrines. Uh, we talked about that a little bit in our Sunday school hour. All throughout, the, all throughout church history, the church has faced this kind of satanic assault, uh, and you can trace it. And we needn't go back too far to see how the fight rages, nor do we need to go out of our own country for that matter. Uh, here in the early 1900s, uh, the social gospel put more emphasis on social issues to the point where salvation had nothing to do with an inner regeneration of the soul by the Holy Spirit and everything to do with how to reform a morally sick society. And of course, the church bought into that, but the, the true church eventually rose uh, above that, uh, and we can be thankful that the Lord sustained the true church here in America. Uh, if you're thinking how that could actually be possible, how could it happen that way? I mean, how, how could social issues actually really get to the point where they, they either replace the gospel or, or uh, um, become you know, a, a, a part of the gospel, just reflect on the social justice issues that are, that are finding acceptance in the church today, right? Critical race theory, the whole woke philosophy. Uh, and so it was the same then. The birth of Christian counseling back in the 1950s, introduced by Clyde Naramore, escalated in the 70s, and the church then was led to believe that secular psychology was part of God's general revelation and okay to integrate with theology. It still does think that today in many pockets. One individual, Jay Adams, was courageous enough to challenge this, arguing that the Bible is the authority on human nature and completely incompatible with tenets of any model of psychology. They are anti-God, anti-Scripture, and they fall in line with those arguments and arrogance that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, are raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are to destroy them, right? Topple them. The decade of the 70s saw the battle for the Bible. Some of you might remember that. Many Christians in the country began to downplay some and actually outright deny the authority and the accuracy of the Bible. So the International Council for Biblical Inerrancy was created to combat this. Jim Boyce led the way in that. Most of us here remember, though, the era of the 80s, I think. Evangelicals were beginning to experiment with an ideology that would later become known as evangelical feminism that pushed egalitarianism, essentially denying biblical headship. So the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was created to combat that. The ecumenical movement reared its ugly head at this time as well and backed the ECT document. And that promoted the joining of evangelicals and Catholics together in ministry in spite of their differences, very 
significant differences, I might add. So the Cambridge Declaration was created to combat that. That also was spearheaded by James Montgomery Boyce, the late James Montgomery Boyce. Now in 2021, it's social justice, the critical race theory, the woke philosophy that that is winning Christians over, apparently, and we mentioned it already, it bricks up the dividing wall between races that the gospel tore down 2,000 years ago. Now, the church is supposed to influence society, right? But often it winds up being influenced by its society and accepts new ways of thinking about social practices that God already defines, such as marriage and homosexuality, parenting, children, to name a few. One such biblical practice that the world has hijacked and claimed for its own and thoroughly redefined is the practice of encouragement. That's right, the practice of encouragement. It actually goes by the name support. Support. That's the secular counterpart. By it, psychologists have taught the world to understand that the role of a supporter or an encourager, is to be a passive presence to someone who's hurting. A passive presence. In other words, supporting people in crisis is not about trying to change their thinking or their behavior. It's not about asking questions that are designed to get them to think about what's in their heart or, or try to interpret their complaints. It, it, it's, it's not about counseling them as to the best course of action. No, none of that. Being a support means just being there, standing with those who are hurting, and, and hurting with them. To be more specific, supporting someone includes just listening, not speaking, but being there for someone to vent his anger and despair to. It also includes minimizing problems. What do you mean by that? Well, if someone beats himself up because he feels like an utter failure, well, you need to minimize that right away and tell that person, well, that's a lie. Don't you believe it? You're not a failure. Supporting, supporting also demands that we make those hurting as comfortable as we possibly can. A person in turmoil or trial as you know, once the trial gone and works toward that end and puts up defenses until it's over. So support would reinforce this person's existing defenses and help to alleviate any distress by whatever means possible. That is all support. Now maybe you can see why this kind of activity is so popular and so welcome, but let me be frank. This kind of support in the church only supports sinful behavior it acknowledges and approves uh, the failure of the believer in crisis to handle his problems biblically. It discourages repentance, it discourages godly change, and it discourages hope. Now, maybe you can see why it's so detrimental to the biblical practice of encouragement, which, as I hope, hope to show, runs in a completely other direction. Biblical encouragement does not just listen. It doesn't just listen. It interprets what's being said from a, from, a, with a, uh, from a biblical lens and with a view to working toward helping Christians in crisis to overcome his or her problems. Biblical encouragers seek godly change in those they encourage. It never minimizes 
problems, but takes the word of another at face value. So you think you're a failure, huh? Well, that's serious. It's not a good thing to be a failure. Let's talk about that and see how you can change. Also, encouragement does not have as its goal to make a person's trials go away, but rather to bring godly change to that person so that he or she can face those trials in a way that pleases Christ. You see, secular support says, in essence, well, look, I don't have the answers you need, and I'm not sure that there is even one out there. But I know that I love you, and, 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 I can, and you can be sure that I will try to suffer through it with you. Now, that sounds good. It's sincere. It certainly is welcoming, but it only exacerbates the problem, and it offers no hope, no hope whatsoever. Last I checked, the New Testament says that God's divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. And that means that God never leaves the church without access to adequate resources to overcome and, and to stay walking tall. The sufficiency of both the Word and the indwelling Holy Spirit enables us to will and to do according to God's good pleasure in any situation. Now, if that is the case, then whenever believers are not handling problems well, they cannot blame God or their circumstances. The failure lies squarely with them. Now, some of them might not like to hear that, but let me tell you, that is liberating. Since they can do something, to overcome their problems. You can make it go away. And that is an encouraging message. So let's turn our attention to the text at this time and learn more about biblical encouragement. We've made our way through two parts of this admonition so far. Let us continue to approach God in faith and let us hold firmly to our confession of hope. Now, the writer says, let us consider how to encourage in love. And so we begin with faith, we move to hope, and now we're ending with love in verse 24. Love is, a, is another, uh, a love for what another, rather, is, is expressed in concrete terms of encouragement here in these verses. So let's read the last part of this admonition in its context with nine, verses 19 to, to 22 in mind. We said, if it is true that we can now walk boldly into the holy sanctuary without fear, because of Christ's work, and appeal to him as our sitting high priest who ministers to us, and it is true, then, the writer says, let's consider how to encourage one another to love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, that's the, that's the passage, and it's very it's a very profound little passage. I want to begin with you with the context. I always begin with the context that is so vital to Bible study. What does it tell us? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us, this passage tells us, certainly, that it is about biblical encouragement. Uh, that should be obvious by the repetition of the command itself in verses 24 and 25. Encourage one another, it says. And you know that repetition is often for emphasis. It's just the way we use it today many times. And so it is here. So this is about encouragement, biblical encouragement. What else 
does the context tell us? Well, I want you to notice that biblical encouragement is pitted against the sinful practice of neglect in, in a way that shows it to be the preventative of neglect. All right? So, biblical encouragement is pitted against sinful neglect, but in such a way as to say biblical encouragement is the preventative of neglect. What do I mean by this? Well, there is a relationship between these two verses that puts these two practices in their proper perspective. What is their relationship? Well, verse 24 says, encourage. Verse 25 says, don't forsake the assembly. At first glance, those two commands don't seem to go together as opposites, do they? We, we would expect the writer to say in verse 24, be faithful in your attendance. And verse 25, don't forsake the assembly. You know, that would seem to make better sense to us. But here's what you need to know. While encourage one another and don't forsake the assembly are not opposites, they are extreme practices on the same spectrum. In other words, we have the best possible practice on the one end and the worst possible practice on the other end. So in stating them together, the writer calls us not only to faithful attendance, but much more than that. So let's examine these extremes a little more closely. We'll start with the worst possible practice, the first extreme, uh, or one extreme. The, per for, or the worst possible practice in one's relationship with the church, and that's neglect. Neglect. It's to have nothing to do with the church, or at best you have a loose association or affiliation with it. You don't attend the worship services, uh, important assemblies that leadership deem necessary for your spiritual well-being or the well-being of the body, or gatherings for communal prayer like the ones that the early church had in the book of Acts. You have no interest in the church's com communal evangelistic outreaches or any gatherings for edification. And those in the world who know you would not say that church life is characteristic of your life, much less one of your passions. So that's one extreme. Now the other extreme, the best possible practice, is this. It's not simply the opposite of what we've just said, because, because we all know, don't we, that a person can attend all the functions of the church and still not be present, right? <laughs> You're there, but are you there? A clear case of honoring God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. This is why the writer doesn't just say in verse 24, have faithful attendance. Rather, he says, encourage one another. He has in mind an aggressive involvement in the body. You're an eye, you're an ear, a, a hand, a foot. And far from neglecting body life, you are immersed in it, an active part, a vital member, doing your part to contribute to the health of the whole. This is why the writer speaks then in two extremes rather than just two opposites. Now keep in mind, this is just the context. We haven't even looked at the content yet. And we find confirmation for our, our understanding of this context from the entire message of the, of the letter, or the letter of the entire message, I should say, which is an exhortation against drifting. 
All right, so now let's go to the text. We get the context firmly set in our mind. With that in mind, we, we go to the text itself and we consider the words and phrases. And what we have before us is really a timely word from the writer about biblical encouragement. I'm very excited to get into it with you. Encourage one another, he says. Encourage one another. So, first we need to understand our terms. What is the definition of encouragement? How do we understand encouragement? It's very important, since he mentions it twice in just two verses. The Greek word translated encourage is a very interesting one. Far from the passive idea of secular support, it is an active idea. It actually means to agitate, to stir up, <laughs> even incite. Now those are not words that we tend to think when we hear of the word encouragement. And that's because we're so used to the, what the world has been pushing at us for so long. But the New Testament knows nothing of secular support. The reason is simply that God has told us how to think and act in every situation. So there's never any question about that. And we need to encourage members to carry on in a way that God has outlined in their particular situation. And that involves stirring up their thought process to think God's thoughts after him and to put those godly thoughts into action. Now, many times we, we have to wake believers up who have been stunned by a particular context and they're now feeling very hopeless. That can happen. So in order to get them moving in a godly direction, we listen to their story. And we gain insight into their thoughts and their feelings so that we can then bring God's very hopeful and life-sustaining truth to bear on their context. Now, there are varying degrees of encouragement. Not everyone is in crisis. And many times we encourage fellow Christians with our new insights from our devotionals or, or something that has struck us that about God's truth. Praising God is a very excellent way to encourage others, which is why we have public praise in this assembly every Lord's Day. Praising God is a very way, uh, excellent way to encourage others because when they hear what God is doing in your life, then they're convinced that God will act in theirs as well. That's how it's always been, even in ancient Israel, which is why then praise was very important. You read Chronicles sometime, and you will see how David actually institutes professional singers and praisers to praise in the assembly. It was that important. Well, uh, when they hear what God is doing in your life, as I say, they get very excited because they know God will work in theirs. Now, at other times, we have to light a fire under someone's feet, so to speak, generate godly action. And no matter the degree, then, of need, be sure of this. Encouragement always stimulates the hearer to love God and love neighbor more, right? That's what we want to do. Encourage to that degree. That's something of what it means to encourage someone in the Lord. And what makes it good and holy and proper before God is, well, it's that it's done in the best interest of the one that we're trying to encourage. We have that person's best interest in mind. We do it with all patience and love. And we use God's truth as the agitating agent. You know, in the same way that the agitator in a washing machine shakes the dirt loose from a, a piece of clothing and cleans it, so Scripture washes us. 
It confronts us in those moments of fear and timidity, of hopeless and weakness. And when spiritually lethargic, and it shakes sinful thinking out of us and a good measure of biblical sense into us. That's how it works. <laughs> that's, that's encouragement. Number two, how, what are we to encourage people toward? And let's get specific, to love and good deeds. I say that because that's kind of a general thing, but specifically, this is what we're doing. It, it, it's not toward great retirement. It's not toward you know achieving a, a certain you, you know um, uh, weightlifting goal or, or or anything like that. It's to love and good deeds. Verse twenty four. That's what we're spurring people onto. So let's talk about these. What about love? Love. There's about as much misunderstanding about biblical love among Christians as there is about encouragement. Even famous Christian authors and speakers debate the biblical meaning of love. Some see it to be an action only devoid of all emotion. Others argue that love is strictly an emotion and not an action at all, which I think is more difficult to support from the New Testament. So what are we to think? about our definition of love. Well, certainly the world's definition is right out. Of that, I think we can agree. The world sees love as some kind of uncontrollable feeling that takes hold of you, like a voracious beast that consumes its victim. It makes you stupid. It holds, holds you hostage. It casts a spell on you. It's something that you can fall into and then fall out of again or find one moment and then lose the next. You've all heard the descriptions before. People sing about this all the time. Bottom line is love isn't something that you can harness. That's what they believe. You certainly cannot tell someone whom to love. They're sure of that as if love can somehow be commanded. Oh, no. And all I have to say is thank God that his love is nothing like that. If you want to know how God loves, read through the New Testament, and in every instance where God is said to love us, you will discover that God gives himself to us. That is biblical love. He gives himself. God, God's love means giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ gave himself for us. Uh, God, our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal life and comfort and good hope and grace. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. God's love he loved us by giving himself to us in profound ways. And that makes perfect sense when we think about the fact that God commands us to love this way. It may sound foolish to the world's way of thinking because love, again, cannot be commanded, but biblical love can be if it's an action. Oh, so God's love is an action. Well, it is. God commands us to treat our neighbor the way he treats us. But that's not to say that biblical love is devoid of emotion. No. Biblical love is also an emotion. It's both an emotion and an action. But it is an action first. It's an action 
first. Why do I say that? Well, because you cannot command emotions. Raw emotions are the byproduct of our thinking and our actions. If you want to change the way you feel about something, you need to first change your thinking about it and then your behavior toward it. You can change those two things. And by doing that, you can create then the corresponding emotion. That is the motion that should go with it. Let me show you how this works with an enemy. God commands you to love your enemy. We all know that. But if love were simply an emotion or an emotion first, then you would never be able to do that. Ever. How could you sit there in the middle of the room and generate a feeling of brotherly love for someone that you have only negative feelings for? or maybe even sinful, murderous thoughts about. And even repenting over murderous thoughts, which of course is what we should do, does not generate brotherly affection. For that, you have to give yourself to your enemy in very specific and meaningful ways. Really? In what ways? Well, you need to devote your prayer time, part of your prayer time, to praying for him because Satan has duped him. And you need to go out of your way to be kind to him in the office. Say hi. Say goodbye. Ask him how he's doing. Ask him if you can get him a cup of coffee on your way to Duncan's, which we argued last week. America runs on. <laughs> Offer your assistance to him with work. Give an honest report about his abilities when the boss asks you about his performance because he's up for a promotion. Essentially, you make this individual your project, and then you spend all kinds of time working at it. Something that you devote much of your free time to becomes your treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So eventually, you move from sinful, hateful thoughts over to pitying this individual because you know he's depraved and misguided and really cannot help himself in the way that he treats Christians. And then you begin to generate a brotherly affection for him. The progression is inevitable. It's inevitable. Now, if that's the way that you're called to treat an enemy, how much more a brother or sister in Christ or your spouse that you may have lost that loving feeling for. The way to get it back and to keep it <clears throat> going strong is to put yourself out for that person. That is biblical love. I want to share a formula with you just to prove that what I'm saying is true. I want to share a formula with you. If you do what you know to be right, if you do what you believe to be right, and that, of course, is what God commands. You will eventually feel the right and corresponding emotion. That is an ironclad principle. If you do what you know to be right, which is God's word, then you will eventually feel the right and corresponding emotion. Do we have biblical precedent for this? Yeah. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. There Cain is depressed, sinfully angry, and thinking murderous thoughts about his brother Abel doesn't get any, any worse than this. He's about to kill him. God confronts him with a rhetorical question. Why are you depressed? 
if you do what is right, will you not feel better? Now that's my translation. King James talks about a downcast face, which at, at that time in the 1600s meant depression. You're not feeling too good about this. If you do what is right, you will feel better. You will feel right about this. In other words, you have no reason to be feeling the way you're feeling right now. If you do the biblical thing in this situation, you will come overcome your sinful thoughts. You'll prevent yourself from acting on them, and you will feel much better. And it is, as I say, an ironclad principle. Do what you believe to be right, which is God's word, and you can expect to feel the right and corresponding emotion. Now, we don't start with emotions first. We start with actions that are based in a firm belief, that is what we think, in what God says. And many times, it is contrary to our emotions initially. Right? Jesus didn't look forward to being separated from the Father on the cross, or else he wouldn't have sweat great drops of blood. He agonized over that one. He endured God's will for pleasing the Father, and he could rejoice even in that hour knowing that what he was about to do would indeed please the Father. That is the deep and abiding joy that we get in knowing when we're in God's will. Even if doing God, something that we, we are called to do isn't something we're going to enjoy very much. I love horses. I love to ride them. I love to train them. I love to work with them. I love the kind of effect they have on all kinds of people. I don't care much about cleaning up after them. <laughs> but knowing how I feel about them, I go ahead and do it anyway. You know, it's a joy uh, to care for, for these beasts. Now, because most of us here live or have lived enough of our lives in, as unsaved people, we no doubt have learned We've learned and are used to a worldly kind of love, just as, as we are uh, used to a worldly kind of encouragement. So we have to renew our minds in this area. We need to learn how to love biblically. It's, it's more difficult for some than others, but it's, not, uh, certainly, uh, it's certainly achievable. Let me say it that way. And the more we practice it, the better we get. All the more reason why we need to encourage one another encourage one another to love. In the same category as love are good deeds. And I think it's fair to say that since the writer doesn't really develop a theology of good deeds in this letter, his reference here is no doubt to righteous works. You know, the kind that Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that God had prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We're, we're talking about righteous works that we perform for the good of the body. We're praying for one another. We're bearing each other's burdens, as we talked about this morning. We're helping the weak, even rebuking the wayward when, is ne when necessary. Striving with someone. All acts that, that are for the best interest of each other. You know, Paul's words of encouragement to the church in Lystra and Derby. I don't know if you remember in Acts 14. They were concerned about facing persecution because they, they were a young church and persecution was heating up. How did he encourage them? This is what he said. He said that uh, everyone who is godly must face persecution in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how you're going to encourage these people? Yeah. 
tell them the truth and what they can expect, and that this is supposed to happen with people who are obedient. The writer closes out his letter with some of the same good deeds, which, as he says in chapter 13, are to, uh, are, are, we are equipped to do such as being hospitable to strangers and remembering those who are persecuted for the gospel and submitting to godly elders, praying for God's full-time Christian workers, things like that. Are you catching the, the importance of biblical encouragement and, and that when we are engaged in it aggressively, it becomes a very full expression of biblical love and a healthy body? Are you catching this? agitating lazy Christians, stirring up the spiritually complacent, spurring on members who are even on top of their game, their spiritual game, all the more to do what is most worthwhile, love and good deeds for the glory of God and the benefit of the body. That's what we're to encourage members toward. And this is what should characterize us, no matter how hard and how radical it is to carry out these activities before the observing world around us. Jesus said, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. All right, what, about, uh, what else about encouragement? Well, I said it is a preventative for neglect. It is a preventative for neglect. We don't need to explain the, the command not to abandon our meeting together in verse 25. I think it's self-evident. We know what he's talking about. People in this church were neglecting the body. They weren't showing up. And we should stress that while the author does mean physical absence, they weren't coming. They were going someplace else, to the temple, hanging out with the Jewish sect at Qumran. While he definitely means physical absence, his command to encourage listen very carefully, would also challenge any member who is there physically to be, but, but not there mentally. As we said, churchgoers can have faithful attendance for all the wrong reasons. Maybe they're legalistic about it, making sure they dot all their theological I's and cross all their theological T's. You can still be an I in the body, but be blind and non-functioning. You could be a deaf ear or a limp hand question is, are you seeing? Are you hearing? Are you acting the way you should? In the case of those who pat themselves on the back for faithful attendance, they are ignorant of many biblical practices as well as the real purpose for attending. So while it's obvious that we cannot possibly engage in this kind of biblical encouragement if we're not even there physically, don't be fooled into thinking that you're an encouragement just just for doing nothing but showing up. This calls us to stir up a holy zeal in others with the word. Members can be of little encouragement, even discouraging by their attitudes, while being faithful in attendance. <laughs> oh no, there he is, sitting in the corner again. While many members may legitimately miss a service here and there, but are very encouraging to the body. You see, we, we need to be careful in how we think about this. The question is not so much do you come, but how are you connected with the body, even between the Sundays? These are important questions that the text asks of us.
Well, number four, the fourth thing I want to say about encouragement is that it needs to be continual and progressive. Continual and progressive. By progressive, I mean ongoing. I don't mean contemporary or, or changing in any way. The writer hasn't finished his piece yet. He calls us not only to this kind of interaction, but the encouraging that we're, to take, uh, that we're talking about here should continue and ramp up as we see the coming of the Lord drawing near. Notice he says in verse 25, with the repetition of the command, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, it is hard enough for many in the church to engage in a spiritual activity of this nature that they have to reprogram themselves to do, not to mention doing it on a consistent basis, but to become better and more aggressive at it from one year to the next? Well, that seems to be rather unrealistic, if not completely out of reach in our very busy post-Christian culture. And if it does to you, then it may very well be because your view of the Christian life as a whole is not quite right. That topic, of course, would take weeks for us to unfold, so let me just sum up what I'm saying at the risk of causing more questions than answering. Encouragement is one of many concrete expressions of Christian love that believers should desire to practice because of their initial disposition that was created at conversion. Remember that day when you forsook all to follow Christ? That day in conversion? <clears throat> At that moment in time, we drove a stake in the ground. and We claimed our loyalty to Christ. And it is out of love for the Lord that we can go on to love our neighbor as we ought. What I'm saying is, in a nutshell, that if you have trouble loving the body, and in this case, encouraging members to love and good deeds, then, then you have a problem loving God. Or as John put it much more eloquently than I, if someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So bring words. Now, don't get mad at me for this. This is John speaking. <laughs> Number five, encouragement. Let's talk about the incentive. As we bring this hurriedly to a close, the writer knows that there are godly practices that don't come easy. And in this context, he gives us an incentive. He says, do it as you see the, the day drawing near. Do it with your eye with one, with one eye on, on the future, looking for the return of Christ. How do you prepare for the future? You know, some will say, well, I take care of my health. Others boast of a great retirement plan. Some hope to relocate to a warmer climate, sell their life insurance policy, or take out a reverse mortgage. And as responsible as these all are for life here on earth, they profit absolutely nothing for the kingdom of heaven. So Christians live for the kingdom, last I checked. Now we seek it, we invest in it, we prepare for it by engaging in kingdom activity on earth. We should devote more attention to this activity to the, than, than to any of these other secular ones. I'm not, of course, saying we should 
that we should neglect and not be responsible for the secular ones, like retirement and so on. I'm saying that we need to think more and be more involved in the kingdom activities. We should devote more attention to this kind of activity than to any other secular one. A good-paying job is not an end in itself, contrary to the belief of many Christians. They're more interested in climbing the corporate ladder than making a difference for Christ. God created work before the fall, yes. He expects us to be responsible to pay our bills, to pay our taxes, to provide for our family. Yes and amen. But work is only a means to a greater spiritual end, and that is to keep us going, that we can pursue the kingdom. Do you think of work that way? How is the return of the Lord then an incentive for us to keep at it? In this way, we should want the Lord to find us busy about his work when he returns. This way, no one's caught off guard by the master's surprise entrance to this, to this earth someday. Also, this is the kind of work that we will engage in for eternity in heaven. Should we not be more engaged in those activities that someday will occupy our attention for eternity once we're with the Lord? I should think so. Finally, consider. Consider. Number six. When we talk about encouragement, we need to consider. Some of you might be saying, look, I'm not one to shy away from worthwhile investing in the kingdom. Honest. With me, it's not so much a matter of desire, but know-how. I'm at a loss as to how I might encourage members of my church. Okay, fair enough. But there's good news for you, so let me encourage you. The writer actually addresses that in his opening words, which I have waited to the very end to bring up, because I want it to be the very last thing that you think about when we depart on this Lord's Day. He says it in a very interesting way, let us consider how to do this. You see that? Let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. In other words, give some earnest thought to this important area of one anothering. Actually, the command involves devoting some thought to how you're going to accomplish this ongoing, consistent, aggressive, holy agitation in the lives of the saints. That is to spur them on to love and good deeds. So my guess is that if, if what you said is true, then you probably never gave any serious thought, surely not as much as you have to other important areas of your life, to how you might encourage people in the body. So give it at least the same amount of consideration, if not more. And I believe you will soon have a list of things to work from. According to this verse, and I will leave you with this, last thought, the Holy Spirit wants wants us to know that it is the job of every believer to devote his and her time each week to discovering effective ways that he and she can encourage the body. Father, we are grateful for your goodness.